Roy, uh, if you're going to make people stand all day long, I can make them listen to me until the midnight hour. Well, I can't make them. <laughs> We're continuing our series of lessons back to the, the basics. And we're talking about Bible basics. We've been talking about the fundamentals of the faith. Those things that are necessary for us to be unified upon. You know, the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we are to be of the same mind, of the same judgment when it comes to Bible doctrine. And so that requires us to talk about it. That requires us to study more about it. And it requires us to make the effort uh, to see the truth uh, that's being presented. And uh, as we consider God's word in these matters, we were talking about previously the topic of baptism, its essentiality, its necessity for salvation. And then we began talking about the church, the church of Christ. And that expression, Church of Christ, is in, uh, in grammatical terms called the case of possession. It's in the possessive case. Anytime you have the word of before the name, you're going to find that it's a genitive uh, possessive or possessive genitive. And so it shows us that there is ownership. There is possession to this. The people of Christ, the people that Christ owned, the people that belong to Christ, the church of Christ, the people that are of Christ. Those are Christ's people. And that's the idea when it comes to those expressions. And just as a reminder, last week we talked about the idea of ecclesia. And actually the week before that. Ecclesia meaning the called out ones. That's, that's the real idea of church. The English word church doesn't really capture the meaning of the Greek word. The Greek word means literally the called out ones. But what are they called out from? The world. Where are they called, called out to? To Christ. And so they used that word assembly because it was a common expression with the Greeks. And so when they lived in a particular city, they would have an assembly. Call the town for an assembly. So the town would come out of their homes and they would assemble in the town square and they would be able to provide them news and information and, and what have you about what was going on in the city. So that's carried over into the New Testament. Written in Greek, not classical Greek, not modern Greek, but what's called Koine Greek, which is Koine, meaning common. We use the word Koine for contribution. We use the word Koine for communion. And so, koine deals with fellowship, deals with the idea of that 
commonality that each person shares. And when it comes to the Lord's church, we're dealing with that commonality when it comes to the assembly. We're called out and we're called together. To make it more specific, Paul says three times in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when you come together in one place, when you come together in one place, the place doesn't matter. But when you come together, it's in that place. And it's the coming together. You see, the Bible pictures from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 66, the, uh, the prophets projected into the future this idea of people coming together. In Isaiah chapter 2, the Bible tells us that the church, the house of the Lord, would be established on the top of the mountain in Jerusalem. And he said that all the nations would flow to it, would gather there to it. And we read about how that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And we spent a considerable amount of time dealing with that. So we find here that the church was established, the kingdom, in Acts chapter 2. Remember what Jesus said. He said, who do men say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So, he said, I will build my church, singular. I will build my group of people. That's the idea. It will be an assembly of people, but they will belong to me. They will be mine. And then we read about that, adding being, those people being added to the church. Uh, in uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, the Bible tells us that there were 3,000 souls that were believed were added to their number. And then in Acts 2.47, just uh, six verses later, it tells us that the Lord added those who were being saved daily to the church. So notice that. No one in the first century went looking for a church to join. They didn't look in their yellow pages and they didn't skim down the list to see all the churches that we have today. You ever do that? You ever go to a hotel room and just for kicks find out where Churches of Christ are? And you look in the phone book and you have page after page after page. This church, that church, this church, that church. Denominational, non-denominational, anti-denominational, community churches, this and that, this and that. All these different congregations, so-called. And you look, and uh, but in the first century, they didn't have that. What did they have? They had a group of people dedicated to Jesus Christ. That's all they had. There was one group of people, which meant one church universally. And that universal church began where? Jerusalem, right? So in Jerusalem, in the book of Acts, we read about how it started in Jerusalem under the work of Peter. 
and the rest of the apostles. And then halfway through the book of Acts, we begin to read about Paul. The emphasis changes from Peter to Paul. Paul, therefore, was the apostle to go to all the Gentiles. So now the church is leaving Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and just like Luke says in Acts 1 verse 8, and to all the outer or uttermost parts of the world, it now began to spread by going to the Gentiles. So even still, the church that was being established was still being established around the Mediterranean area. Okay? And there it would begin to go to Europe and it would go eastward and go westward. And so we find all of these things happening in the book of Acts. So now <clears throat> there's still one people. I want you to think about that. There's still one people today. That church that began in Jerusalem, that one group of people, people were added to their number. Well, that continues to today. And it has continued for the past 2,000 years. People being added to that number. What number? That church, that ecclesia that you read about in your Bible. When you look at all the churches in the phone book, and you go through the list of names, you'll find not one of those names are mentioned in the Bible. Doug's church is not in the Bible. A lot of other names are not in the Bible. But there is Christ's church. The church that he said he would build. And how can you identify that church? By what it does. What it teaches. And how does it follow its, its own standards? How does it react and behave Towards the teaching of the Bible. In other words. We're right back to the fundamentals. Where Jesus was talking about the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower. The sower was who? God. The seed was what? That it was spreading. The word. And the people that received the message. Were identified as for what? Kinds of soil, right? The first soil, people heard the word and then they fell away, right? The second kind of soil, woo, I love Jesus, and then they fall away. The third kind of soil, I love Jesus, Jesus, and they go about teaching others about Jesus. And then something happens in their life. We'll just say, let's say you had a baby, a little child, your child dies. And this happens today too. Do you know how many people look up to God and they shake their fist at him? Why you took my child? And they fall away. That's the third group of people. But the fourth group of people, they're hanging in there. They're going through all the mess that the first group went through, the second group went through, the third group went through. Their life isn't easy either. But it says they had a good and honest heart. 
That made all the difference in the world. And so what did the word of God produce? A follower of Christ. Hence, a Christian. What did that Christian produce? The church. The word produced a Christian, which produced other Christians, which produced the assembly of people, the church. <clears throat> There's some religions today that think they, the church, produced the Bible, the word of God. No, it's the other way around. The word of God, the Bible, produces the church because it produces Christians. And the only people added to the church are what? Christians. They're the only kind of thing, if you will, that can make the church. Remember, the church is not an it. It's not a building. It's not so much a, an organization as it is a body. As it is an organism. It's a living, breathing people. That's organized by God's word. That's the church. That's the ecclesia of Christ. Isaiah chapter 66, about verse 22, prophesies of that time. Talking about there will be a time when the people will come together on a weekly basis. He's not talking about private devotion. He's not talking about private worship, your own personal worship. I mean, you and I both worship on a daily basis, don't we? I hope so. Because every time we pray, that's an act of worship. And every time we sing songs to our Lord, that's an act of worship. So when I'm out mowing the lawn, I'm worshiping God. I'm singing. And I'm praying. And I'm running Bible verses through my mind. All of that. We can do that. We do that all day long, right? So there's acts of worship that we do individually. I might invite some Christians over for uh, supper or for a coffee. And then afterwards we'll sit down and we'll sing some songs. Maybe read some scriptures. So we can gather smaller groups out of the larger group to worship, right? But there's the collective aspect of worship that involves the entire ecclesia, the assembly. And that is when we come together on what? The first day of the week. Right? <clears throat> it's no longer private worship. It's no longer my individual worship. It's now that I'm obligated to my brethren. Right? Now it's a one another deal. I'm here for one another. I'm here to build you up. Right? You're here to build me up. It's a two-way street. Right? It's all about that. But we're also here to worship God. And then there are specific acts related to the worship that we do together. We still pray. We still sing. But then we have preaching. And we give of our means, our money. We have the Lord's Supper. And we, uh, what else? Did I miss anything? I don't think so. We have all of that, those five acts of worship, when we come together. So those are 
set aside acts of worship for what we do together on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Right? <clears throat> now, I can go home and I can sing. And I can pray. But I can't have the Lord's Supper. I can't have the Lord's Supper on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. No, all of that's designated now to be a part of the public, the collective assembly of the congregation on the first day of the week. And so while we worship together on the first day of the week, we ought to be worshiping with our families, by ourselves, during the rest of the week. Remember, God should be in our hearts every day. Not just the first day of the week. So we need to make that <clears throat> very clear. So associated with the church then, therefore, is being in Christ. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that if you're going to be in Christ, it also means you're going to be in his church. You can't have one without the other. So the Bible tells us, that we're baptized where? Into who? Christ. Christ is the head of the church. But the Bible also tells us that we are baptized into one body. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that he is the head of the church, which is his body. So the body and the church are the same thing. The same group of people. Let's keep it that way instead of saying thing. It's the same group of people, the body and the church. It's a living, breathing organism. It's got feelings. It's got emotions. Why? Because we're human. All of that. And Christ is our head. So, when Paul earlier saw, when he was persecuting the church, Jesus came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Did he say that? Uh -uh. I'm glad you picked that up. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You attack the body. It affects the head. He's the head of the church. The head knows What's going on with the body? And so they go hand in hand. You can't have the head without the body or the body without the head. That would be an ugly creature, right? So we have to have both. And if we're, if we're in Christ, we're baptized into Christ, well, we're automatically baptized into his body, his church, the very church that he said he was going to build. So if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> go to Ephesians chapter 1. This is just an introduction today. Ephesians chapter 1. We're doing it the old-fashioned way. Read your Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, 
and faithful where? In Christ. Where are the faithful? In Christ. Why don't you think about that? The faithful. He didn't say the perfect. He said the faithful are in Christ. Go to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, spiritual realm, in Christ. In Christ. So the faithful are in Christ. Where are all the spiritual blessings? In Christ. Right? So there's a necessity of being where? In Christ. We are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many that have been baptized where? Into Christ have put on Christ. We're baptized into Christ. And when we are baptized into Christ, we're baptized where? Into his one body. We're added to the church by the Lord. We don't go looking for a congregation. We don't go looking to join a place. The Lord adds us after we have been baptized. It will deal with more next time dealing with the local congregations. But right now we're looking at the church at large, the universal church that we're thinking about. So as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places, the church, spiritual realm, in Christ Jesus. So where are the living people? Where are the alive people? The church, in Christ. You see this working out. You see it, how this comes together. There's a lot of people that believe good Moral people will be saved. That's all. It, just good moral. All you have to do is not kill somebody. Murder somebody. Uh, do something very heinous. If you don't do any of those bad, bad things, you're going to heaven. Because you're relatively a good person. Relatively moral in your life. Let me ask you the question. The Apostle Paul was a very moral person. Now he's killing people left and right, putting families in jail. And the Lord comes to him and says, you're persecuting me. Was he good? Was he moral? Well, he thought so. Remember, he said, Later on, when he was a Christian, toward the end of his life, 
He said, up to this very moment of my life, I have lived my life in all good conscience. Even the days when he was persecuting the church. Because you con his conscience back then thought that was the right thing to do. And so he did it. But now he learned that was the wrong thing to do. But his conscience, now, his conscience has now changed. And so that's why he can say, today, up to this very moment of my life, I have lived in all good conscience. Having better judgment of things can change your conscience. Your thinking, your mind, your inner person, who you are. And that was affecting Saul. So if good moral people can go to heaven without baptism, without Jesus, then what did Jesus die for? What is even the purpose of mentioning baptism in the Bible? Why the cross? Right? If good moral people can go to heaven separate apart from all of that, then what's the purpose of it all? What's the purpose of the cross? Right? More than that, the Bible tells us how many people have sinned. All. Right? Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's people who are not Christians, who are good and moral, and people who are Christians, who are good and moral. The Bible also tells us just before that in verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. None. So why do we say all you have to do is be good to be saved? There's none good except one. And you have to be in him. That makes a difference. That doesn't change you and me to being perfect people after we're baptized. What it means is we have entered one phase of our lives and into the spiritual phase of another, into Christ. And so within that spiritual realm, we have all blessings. We can still sin when we do, right? But what makes the difference? Having the blood of Christ in your life. That makes the difference. A person can be good and moral. And there are plenty of good moral people in the world. But they reject or have not done or ignored or refuse to do what God has asked them to do. And so a lot of those people are good. But let's now, who's going to define good? And who is going to define moral? God. Right? So we turn to God's word to find out who is good and who is moral. God determines that through his word. And so we can determine from God's word how we are living. If we are indeed righteous, if we are indeed in Christ. So these things are very important. Now, when you think about this idea of morality, so you have, you have the idea that there are, uh, there's moral law and there's positive law. Positive law was this idea that was brought out in the 1800s or so. It was the idea that, well, man has this moral law, he has his conscience, 
But then the positive law are these things that God requires that you can know for certain that are right or wrong. Right? So basically what we're dealing with is this. We have moral law and we have doctrinal law. Or we have moral principles and doctrinal principles. We can violate moral principles. So what we're doing is we're breaking sin down, if you will. God breaks sin down. Sin is sin, right? So if we have this big umbrella of sin, and everything under, under that umbrella is sin, then it's sin, right? For the, uh, all sin is a transgression of the law. But right there, we find two words. Sin, hemartia, and transgression, parabasis. Okay? Two different words, but they're synonymous with one another. Sin means to miss the mark, hemartia. And then parabasis simply means to transgress, to go over, to cross over. And then there's another word called iniquity. Iniquity, which is anomia. A, if I put a, if I went to the doctor's office and they checked me and they said, uh, Doug was asymptomatic for COVID-19, what would they mean? He didn't have any symptoms. He was asymptomatic. Now, if they said Doug was symptomatic, I have the symptoms of COVID-19. But Doug does not, so they put a little A in front of the word symptomatic. A, symptomatic. Well, they did that in the Greek, too. So, if you had the word theos, theos means what? God. Right? Now, if they said A, theos, you'd say no God. So we get the word atheist, they don't believe in God. No God, right? It cancels it out, it negates it. So if I am asymptomatic, then I don't have symptoms. But if I am anomia, nomia means law, and anomia, then I don't believe in law, or I'm lawless. That's iniquity, anomia. So the Bible itself, the Holy Spirit, breaks down sin into three categories. Hemartia, parabasis, and anomia. Now, what we do is we break that down even further by saying, well, there's moral uh, principles or moral law, and there's doctrinal principles or doctrinal law. And we kind of separate them. Because when you look at Moral law, we can go to the book of Romans and we can go to the book of Galatians and we can look back and find out that the Gentiles went astray. And they went so far astray, it said that the men gave up the natural use of the woman and began doing the unnatural with the men. And the women gave up the natural use of the woman or the man and began doing the unnatural. So now, now we're, broken, we're breaking down the morality into natural and unnatural. To put it mildly, homosexuality is unnatural. That's what it's saying. Heterosexuality is natural. It's, what, it's part of our nature. 
I mean, you really got to fight hard against the nature to say that you're homosexual. Because the nature itself demands heterosexuality. In other words, we're programmed, if you will, to be that way. Automatically, naturally, attracted to the opposite sex, not to the same sex. So, as we consider those things, and then we uh, think about, uh, so homosexuality is a moral sin. It's different than someone's taking the Lord's Supper on Thursday, right? Taking the Lord's Supper on Thursday is not really a moral sin, it's a doctrinal sin. So what we're dealing with here is basically this. Moral sins are typically tied to the individual, you and me. But the doctrinal is typically tied to the collective, to what we do together and what we teach together. Okay? And I'm just trying to, maybe I've oversimplified it, but I'm trying to make it as simple as I can when we think about these things. And so when we do think about those things, what we're saying is, is that Christians can become immoral, and they can also break doctrinal law. We can do things wrong in worship. We can do things in our, wrong in our practices. We can do things wrong with uh, the organization, if you will, of the church. What does the church teach about the organization? Well, it teaches that Jesus Christ is the head. Now, of a local congregation, who would be the head of the local congregation? Doug Post? No. Shoot that guy. It's the elders. They're the pastors. They're the ones who shepherd the flock. And they have to meet certain qualifications to do so. And then there's the servants, the deacons. And of course, then there's the preacher and teachers. And so that's the organization of the church. But you've got some churches today where they have none of those things. They'll have one elder... And he's the guy that's over everybody. And, uh, and then a pastor. They call him the preacher. And he's got control even over that elder. So there's a lot of error there when it comes to the idea of organization. So that's doctrinal error. There's a lot of people that, even in churches of Christ, you heard me talk about Max Lucado a couple of weeks ago. Well, there's several churches in the Texas area, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, where last night they had the Lord's Supper. They worship on Saturday. They, you have a choice. You can go to the, the traditional service on Sunday, or you could go to the special, the Saturday night special, on Saturday. All right? And you can have your worship then. And we'll provide you the Lord's Supper and, and all of that. So, out of convenience, that's what they do. And of course, on Sunday, they have their traditional service. And then they have the uh, more uh, progressive service after that. <clears throat> so, uh, all these things are going on. But they violate scripture. There's doctrinal error there. It's not necessarily moral. 
but it's doctrinal. See, there's a difference. And you can tell the difference when you look at uh, the sins that are, that are listed in the book of Galatians, for instance, where it talks about the immorality that's associated with sex. Now, the Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun. So when we look at our society, we're looking at a, well, we're looking at dark times, to put it mildly. But we're looking at people where sex is just everywhere. It's infecting the churches. It's infecting families. It's infecting the young ones. So now you have children who, who are eight and nine and 10 who are no longer children because of the influence of immorality that's about them. And so we have a hard time fighting against all of that. And we keep saying to ourselves, well, we're, we're living in bad times. We are. But there were bad times in Noah's day. There were bad times in Adam's day. Adam's day is what brought Noah's day. <laughs> Right? It brought the flood. And we look at history. And it just keeps repeating itself. Because we don't learn. We don't learn from God's word. And I haven't even gone to the next slide. But we're going to stop there. And we're going to come back next week. We're going to talk more about this. This is very important. As it all relates to the Lord's church. Now. Do you belong to Jesus? Can you say that you belong to Jesus? If you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, you can rightfully say, I belong to Jesus. I'm his and he's mine. But if you have not been baptized for the forgiveness of sins, in order to be in Christ Jesus, if you have not done so, you don't have that relationship, to put it mildly. You just don't have that relationship. That's why baptism is necessary. It's necessary. That's why Jesus said a person must, must be born again. There's no escaping it. There's no going around it. There's no gray area. You either are or you are not. What will it be? What will your answer be? If you decide to make that decision today to put Jesus Christ in our baptism, why don't you do so now as together we stand and sing.